Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Excuse me? How can I help you? Can you tell me how to get to Carl Zimmer's belly button? You're there. This is it? This is it. I don't know. I, the way that the microbe temp agency described it, I thought it would be nicer. Well, you get used to it. Whoa! Watch it! What was that huge thing? A piece of lint. I guess Carl's wearing the Yale sweatshirt today. Are there any food particles around here? I've had a really long trip and my cytoplasm is killing me and I really want to secrete some enzymes. Travel is a pain in the efflux pump. You got any family? No. All my relatives were wiped out in an antibiotics raid. Z-Pack? Yes. Bastards! I mean, make it a fair fight, am I right? Seriously, who are those guys with the long flagella? Staphylococcus. They control the weight room. Don't even try going in there. Hey, does Carl ever come down here? I would really love to meet him. Not really. And today he's doing some kind of radio program. Here, read this. Today on the show, you'll learn to think of your body as one big wildlife preserve. And now, if he had any more microbes in his armpits, he'd... What does this say? Uh, I can't read it either. Hmm. Colin McEnroe. Well, <laughs> thanks for that lovely intro. Although, I think, after all that, we don't really have Carl Zimmer ready to go yet anyway. But we will. We are, we're efforting it, right? I am correct that we don't have him. Yes, we don't have Carl Zimmer. All right. Uh, yes, we have no bananas or Carl Zimmer. We're having some technical difficulties. I, I'm going to be upfront with you about this. We're having a few little technical problems here. But that is not going to interfere, uh, interfere with your enjoyment uh, of this show or uh, the lots and lots of information we're about to give you. Because we do have our two other guests uh, ready to go. And let me tell you about them and I'll tell you about what we're going to talk about today. Although I think the intro gave you kind of a clue. Rob Dunn is a biologist and writer in the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University. Uh, Julia Sugre is a senior investigator at the National Human Genome Research Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. And what we're going to talk about today, you know, you probably have been hearing the word biome a lot. Um, but usually when, when you hear, particularly on public radio, people talking about the biome or somebody's biome, they're usually kind of more or mostly talking about the biome in the gut or, or something like that. But what people maybe neglect is the fact that there's also a biome living right on our skin. There's, um, I think, something like 100, 100 trillion uh, microbes that uh, that live uh, on us. Uh, and uh, well, you'll have them when you're born, and you're, you're still going to have microbes on you when you die. We're going to talk about some of the implications of that. And we're going to start out um, with uh, Rob Dunn. Uh, and uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about Carl Zimmer's belly button. Particularly since he's not here, we can talk about his belly button behind his back. Oh, no, Carl is here, actually. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we can talk about your belly button behind your back. Although that would have been fun. Um, so, so, okay, Carl, since you're here, I'll start with you, the, with you and sure. then I'll, I'll throw to Rob and Julie. So um, we just did, Aaron, uh, an impudent introduction about uh, microbes <laughs> in your belly button. And so um, explain all this. Why does anybody know anything about the microbes in Carl Zimmer's belly button? 
Uh, I am just one subject among many in Rob Dunn's research. Uh, he, Rob has been uh, collecting people's uh, belly button gunk for a few years now, and uh, I happened to be at a conference where he was um, uh, handing out Q-tips and asking people to take a little sample and give it to him uh, to do some research. Uh, and so I, I, that's the sort of thing that I will leap to do. So uh, I gave him some of my belly button samples, and uh, he went off and sequenced the DNA and just to, you know, to get a sense of, you know, what, what are we dealing with? What kind of biodiversity are we dealing with in our bodies? And, you know, the belly button is kind of like, uh, you know, it's a little ecosystem. It's like a, it's like a pond that we all carry around with us. So one of the things that we now know is that although you, Carl Zimmer, have a very exciting uh, belly button ecosystem, you know, you actually have sort of below average diversity, right? You've got 59 um, microbes in there, 59 different species, we should say, of microbe. Well, I should say that Rob found 59 species. Um, if you, if I'm sure, if he looked harder, he don't would have get found defensive, more. Carl. Don't get defensive now. Well, <laughs> you know, the fact is that when I wrote about this on my blog uh, and proudly uh, announced that I am home to 59 species in my belly button, people started making fun of my uh, hygiene habits. And there are two problems there. One is I am, it turns out, kind of below average when it comes to biodiversity in the belly button. Uh, there are people, I, I don't know what the, Rob can tell you what the record is. I think they're up to over 100. But um, also, like, if, if, if Rob had, like, taken a sample of my belly button and come up with no species, uh, if I was, like, perfectly, quote, unquote, clean, I would be terrified because that would mean that I am really unhealthy and mm. I could actually get some serious diseases. So I am happy to have my 59 species uh, of bacteria in my belly button. All right. So um, let's go over to Rob Dunn now. Um, First of all, why why do we care what what kinds of microbes and how many species of microbe are in Carl Zimmer's belly button or anybody else's belly button? Well, um, so first, in large part due to work like that of Julie's, um, we've known for a while that the life that lives on our skin plays a really important role in our health and well being, and so it's you know it's our first line of immune defense before your immune system ever interacts with a virus or a pathogen. The, the life on your skin interacts with those critters. And so it was interesting, I mean, Carl was interesting from that perspective. The second is, that, you know, if we close our eyes and interact with other people, the dominant framework in which we interact with other people is not their skin or their own cells, it's their microbial cells, because our odors are almost totally produced by the stuff living on our skin and our armpits, other places around us. Um, and so it's an interesting ecosystem in which we depend every day, but we don't think about very much. And, and so we actually started the project that Carl was involved with um, first as, a, as an opportunity to engage the public in thinking about all of this life and the extent to which, you know, every day we wake up dependent on it, but we don't, we don't consider it very much. And, and we chose the belly button in part because it's an interesting, you know, spot in the body. Carl doesn't wash it super frequently. Um, and because we knew in engaging the public, if we went below the belt, we would get fewer participants. And, and, and so it was a happy medium. Right. We probably wouldn't have been able to do this show uh, if you'd done that. So we appreciate that. So, Rob Dunn, uh, I don't know whether your situation has changed or not. Last time I knew you were stuck uh, in, in an airport. Uh, are you still stuck in an airport? I'm still stuck in the airport. So if you hear loud noises, uh, it's not the apocalypse. It's just a plane. So let me ask Julie Segre a question. Uh, uh, the longer Rob is stuck in an airport, will he be acquiring new microbe friends 
that are going to come to live on his skin? Is that is that how this works? Or is he going to leave the airport with pretty much the same bunch of microbes on his skin that he came in there with? So we've done investigations of what are the transient bacteria versus the resident bacteria. And um, I think that you're more inclined to think about bacteria sort of constantly being, you know, new transients and, you know, you pick them up from a subway pole or from, you know, you know, licking the table at the restaurant that you eat at in the airport. But in fact, the bacteria, fungi, and viruses that um, inhabit the human skin, most of them live fairly deep inside hair follicles, sweat glands, and they'll replenish. So we often see even after a perturbation, um, like a shower, like um, antibiotic use, that the bacteria will will come back and reseed you, and they're not coming from the environment. They're really coming from deeper inside of your skin. So I expect that um, Rob's going to leave that airport kind of with the same friends he came in with. All right. We're talking about the microbes on you today. And by the way, if you have questions, 860-275-7266. We're going to talk about how they get on you in the first place. Uh, We're going to talk about, I mean, sort of how you acquire them in the first place. We're going to talk about maybe whether you are occasionally doing their bidding. There's some thinking about that. Uh, Our number, if you have questions, 860-275-7266. So, Carl... Uh, I feel really terrible that I kind of ran down your belly button as not that diverse and therefore interesting a place. But we so in all fairness, we should say that you had at least two species uh, of bacteria or microbe in your belly button that Rob typically doesn't find. So I'm going to give you a chance to brag about them. Well, we can all brag about uh, the bacteria in our bodies because um, – they tend to be uh, rather strange and, and fairly new to science. So in my case, for example, Rob you know, found one species where he's like, okay, well, what is this? What, what, what is the closest match in bacteria that we already know about? And the closest match came from a species that was uh, found in soil in Japan. So I've never been to Japan, so that was interesting. Uh, and then another species was uh, most it was the closest match to bacteria that were that was found at the bottom of the Marianas Trench in the Pacific. I mean, the deepest part of the ocean in the world. Uh, again, a place I've never been to. So all that tells you is that there's this stunning amount of diversity in the microbes all over the world, but including in our bodies. We we have only just started to tra- chart that diversity and. So it's it's kind of like going into the the final frontier. Um, so Rob, that it, 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 in a tiny way, anyway, it, it almost militates against what we were just talking to Julie about, right? So uh, Carl's got, and we'll talk about the so-called oligarchs in just a second, the uh, the, the ones who kind of dominate. Uh, but Carl's got you know a couple of exotic bacteria that he couldn't have easily acquired, at least from direct sources. So what do we know about that, or do we know anything about um, how, how Carl might have gotten them? So, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to know about the rare things, and especially if you, know, you have something where, you know, you've encountered one strain or species of something, and we might not know about its hundred or thousand closest relatives. And so, I mean, something that was very unusual, uh, that we only found in Carl may, in fact, be in lots and lots of people, and it's just rare on those individuals, um, or we, you know, tend to see its relatives, but not it. And, I mean, it's a pretty amazing moment, um, 
in the study of our bodies and as much as we're it's becoming very clear how little we know at the same time we're realizing how important these things we know little about are and and that includes you know includes uh, Julie's done great work on fungi you know so it's not just back bacteria and we're starting to do a lot more work on animals and so we're finding new species of mites that live on people's heads um, that are very, very frequent. And, you know, these are animals we know very little about. And and so, you know, when Carl has something very unusual, I, I think he makes the point very well that it speaks most to our ignorance. So um, let's talk about, instead of Carl's rare bacteria, Rob, just very quickly, you know, th- there are these uh, the creatures, these these microbes that I guess are scientifically referred to as oligarchs, which is uh, an amusing term, but one that I guess also is a little bit more widespread in other situations. What are we talking about when we're talking about oligarchs? Well, so, so I, I think for Julie's early earlier point that, you know, d- deep in the follicles and glands, we have these species that are really, really abundant and um, and also abundant on the skin. And although the skin overall is very, very diverse, that maybe there's this subset that plays a disproportionate role. And so, for example, we started to study armpits a lot more. And uh, Corynebacterium is a genus of, of bacteria that's super slow-growing and responsible for much of our um, armpit odor. Uh, and it's an almost, you know, one or two strains are found in almost everybody's armpit. And, and so here's something that, uh, you know, it's an obvious candidate for more detailed study because the fact that it's so, so frequent among people suggests that, well, if we can work that story out, it's probably pretty significant. Um, rather than having to figure out every one of the thousands of stories, um, it's at least a starting point. All right. So, actually, um, Rob, it's so great that you brought up armpits because we've got a caller uh, checking in about that question. We're, just for the sake of diversity, we might have Julie uh, attempt to start an answer to the question. But let's hear the question from Bindu in New Haven. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, uh this question is, uh, my husband, he traveled to India in summer months. He was born and raised in India. He lived there till he was 25 years of age. And uh, this was the first time he traveled back to India in summer months. And he came back and his body order changed. And it has changed. Now we are in February and somehow it has not come back to original. We thought, you know, maybe he used different body products, you know, cleaning products. And that's why it has changed. We came back to the usual. We usually use organic ones. But it has not come back to the to his usual body order. All right, this is a great question, and I, I'm not expecting our scientists here to be able to do a curbside diagnosis, sight unseen, and armpit unsmelled uh, of this problem. But but Julie, it kind of gets to what we talked about at first, right? So something did go. I mean, even though there's sort of a permanent government, a permanent microbial government on your. Uh, on your body and in your body that can maybe be driven down a little bit and only to rise back up again from the depths. But there are things that do change, and, and we don't know what happened with her husband. But is it is it possible uh, in the way that Rob was just talking about that, that, that he does have some new uh, microbes in there that are, are making his, his body smell different? Right, absolutely. We, we, we tend to think about the, the changes um, most dramatically occurring in the first year of life um, when you really are being exposed to a lot of new bacteria, but when you move from being held to crawling around to um, exploring new environments. Um, our research has also looked at the transition through puberty, 
which the skin then becomes oilier and it becomes a better um, home for um, bacteria like Rob was discussing, the carinobacterium that need the lipids, um, the oils in the, the skin. So we've looked at, you know, healthy volunteers and looked at the stability. There is um, stability to many of these bacteria, and especially the dominant bacteria, um, what you're calling the oligarchs. But absolutely, there are periods where, um, you know, there can be a subtle or a fairly dramatic shift in what is the bacteria. And as the caller was describing, they can um, um, impact our physiology, the way we smell. Um, and it, it may be that, you know, her husband has a new normal. And um, we've, we've seen examples like this. I would say that the work that really looked at this was Jack Gilbert when he was looking at um, the home and, you know, people and uh, what bacteria they see in the home versus the humans and then the people who live together. Um, so this is a very intimate relationship that we have with the bacteria that live on our skins, and that's part of the uh, intimate relationship that we do have then with other people we live with, that there could be sharing of these bacteria. In general, we tend to think that these are bacteria that, again, are part of the healthy community. And I think that it's um, something that we'll, we'll look into in the future in terms of how might there be periods where you are more and less susceptible to taking on new bacteria. And we've been really interested in that, all of that idea of, like, if, an, if you're exposed to a new bacterial strain, does it colonize, like, your feet specifically, your underarms? Um, you know, what is the fine-tuning between these bacteria and the human host? So I think we're just, we've just developed the tools to even start asking these questions, and this is what scientific research will be looking at for the next years. Um, I want to come back to that home question in just a second here. Uh, but Bindu in New Haven, it does sound like your husband picked up some hitchhikers. Um, so, Carl Zimmer, we're we're circling around a, um, a, a fundamental human question that exists in our lives. And we had conversations with our mothers about it. Um, you know, it, it exists uh, way, way outside the, the realm of scientific laboratories. And, and I'm going to refer to it now as the Papulian question, named after Irene Papoulis, who's a frequent guest on this show. She's a professor of English. She doesn't study microbes, but she and I were somewhere. I can't remember where. And I said something about germs. And she said, look, there's always germs. We always have germs. There's germs everywhere. There's germs all around us. The only thing that really changes is our resistance to the germs. So stop worrying uh, whether there are germs or not. And this kind of harks back to conversations our mothers had with us. I grew up in the 1960s where it has germs on it was kind of the worst thing your mother could say. You know, I mean, that was the, the thing that, at least from her point of view, was the worst thing that could happen is something would have germs on it. But that seems like a silly conversation now if, in fact, we have 100 100 trillion microbes on us for all of our lives. So how, how, just as humans, do we sort all that out? I mean, should we be indifferent to the germs around us and just assume things are working out okay? Uh, I wouldn't be indifferent. I mean, <clears throat> you know, unless you want to end up in the hospital. Um, but I, I just, you might want to benefit by, you might benefit by a different way of thinking about your body. Um, we uh, are rife with with germs from you know birth and uh 
and stay that way till death. The, so think of yourself as a garden. Um, so, you know, a garden has lots of plants in it, uh, but, and you wouldn't want weeds getting in there. Weeds could really wreak havoc with your garden. So you, there are lots of different ways that can, you can keep weeds out, um, and you might want to be careful about, you know, how, what you use to get rid of them. You know, you could take a flamethrower and get rid of all the weeds, but, you know, you might destroy a bunch of the, the good plants too. Uh, so, you know, germs still matter, you know, uh, to, there are germs that will give you tuberculosis that you don't want to mess with. There are germs that will, you know, give you meningitis that you don't want to mess with. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't want to get rid of uh, the many, many, many uh, good or neutral germs. Um, you know, just uh, circling back to you, uh, Rob Dunn, you know, Julie was talking about what's found in the home. And this was, if I understand, I'm really bad at reading scientific papers. I'm not Carl Zimmer. But if I understood what I was reading in your research, the 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 oligarchs the the um, most frequently found bacteria in the belly button and not only most frequently found but found in most abundance pretty closely parallel what you'd find in somebody's house too I mean is that correct Yeah um, so it depends where in the house and, and so I mean you're kind of like as you walk along you're like pig pen from Charlie Brown and so you're shedding cells and microbes. But, but then, I mean, per Jack Gilbert's work that was mentioned earlier, they're also, you know, colonizing you at, at some frequency from what's around you. And so, I mean, think about the world around you is filled with organisms that are coated in this pig pen-like aura um, that we exchange, uh, not always, but sometimes. Um, and our house is subject to that pig penness. And so the places you sit are covered with those oligarchs. Um, the, you know, the toilet seat and the pillow are covered with the skin oligarchs plus things from your gut. Um, you know, we're not really good at being... So if we would just look at the microbes on toilet seats and pillows, we can't tell them apart very well. They're very, very similar it's because they're getting fecal oral microbes. Um, but one, I mean, one of the really interesting things is we do know that different people have different microbes, different houses have different microbes, and... I've been writing a lot about heart transplants recently, and there's old literature about whether or not when you get a new heart, will your personality change, will who you are change. And I think going back to the caller's question, one of the things that's really interesting is that the answer for a heart is no, but the answer if you get new microbes may well in some ways be yes. But, you know, if you have different gut microbes, your, your, uh, your gut processes things differently. Your weight might be different. Your personality might even be different. If you have different skin microbes, you smell differently to your lover. Um, and so, it's, so this is an amazing reality that our, these partners that we think of as germs might matter more to who we are than, say, our heart does. Um, uh, you know, and that that's something that goes around us and we drag everywhere we go. I think it's fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, and you just sort of made my head explode. I mean, not literally uh, uh, saying that thing about the personality changing, except that Carl Zimmer I do know from reading your work, and I don't know if this is exactly what Rob is talking about, but I know from reading your work that there's one set of theories about the fact that occasionally we might be working for our microbes. In other words, there, are, there may be things, uh, part of our, parts of our biome, microbes that want certain things. I think, you know, the, the uh, thought exercise might be, what if there was something inside you that wanted chocolate, and that's why you think you want chocolate? Yeah, so these are some uh, uh, pretty uh, speculative ideas at the moment, but uh, microbiologists are actually taking them seriously. Uh, and the reason is that actually, you know, bacteria in your body, especially in your gut, 
um, can uh, influence your brain through several different channels. Um, they can release molecules that can actually get up into your into your brain. They there's they can interact with the the nerves that are in your gut, um, and they may be able to influence your brain actually by the way they influence the immune system, which then passes on those signals. So there are all these channels that are open, and and the fact is that if you if you look at uh, mice, for example, where there are you have some healthy mice over here that have lots of good germs in them, and then you raise some other mice that are germ free, uh, so they've never had a microbiome. Um, their personality is a little different. They're they're less social, for example. Um, they can be more anxious. Um, they actually develop different kinds of tastes. They they actually have uh, more of a, of a they they may be have more of a sweet tooth. Uh, some studies suggest. So clearly, we know that there are ways that. The, that bacteria can influence uh, our personalities, our behavior, and so on. And the fact is we also know that in nature, there are lots of parasites that control their hosts to get what the parasites need. I mean, I wrote a whole cover story for National Geographic about this. This is a very common evolutionary strategy. So here's this hypothesis, like, okay, if we combine all these pieces together, what if, you know... Your, the bacteria inside of you would do really well if you ate certain kinds of food. Could they make you hungry for those kinds of food so that you would feed them? Um, and so that's the, that's, those are the kind of crazy ideas that, that actually scientists are, are just you know, starting to think about seriously now because the microbiome is just so, uh, so, so remarkable uh, as we're discovering. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, this should be exciting given our technical problems, but we think we think this is going to work out okay. And we're going to come back with Carl, with uh, Julie, with Rob, with anybody that Rob meets at the airport. Uh, you never know who may pop up on this show. And we're back. We're talking about biomes. We're talking about the microbes, the 100 trillion microbes you carry around with you. Carl Zimmer is with us, science writer and columnist for The New York Times. I don't even know if I even said that at the beginning because we were having so much trouble locating Carl technologically. Rob Dunn is a biologist and writer in the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University. Julie Segre uh, is senior investigator at the National Human Genome Research Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. Julie, I'm going to start with you uh, and just uh, I think people might be wondering, uh, well, where do we get all these microbes from? And so in the past, it was kind of thought that the innocent little fetus or uh, sitting in the womb doesn't have any of these microbes, that when the baby's born, it kind of goes through the birth canal, and it's like one of those car washes, you know, that just stuff just gets sprayed on it. And, and so that, that the microbes uh, then uh, are, are kind of added during the birth process. But I gather that particular theory has been kind of discredited uh, as of now. 
Actually, I think that's a really open question. If, mm. if I could do one experiment that I think would really be important, it's, it's to do a birth cohort, to look at how babies are colonized and, you know, study them every day for the first year of life and then see what, you know, and really try to track back the source of where did those bacteria come from and then see if that had any impact on future health outcomes. I really think that's the question that a lot of Americans and people in other countries are are looking at is, you know, what really is happening in these early years and in this birthing process? I think we really can't have this discussion without giving a big shout out to Martin Blazer's book, Missing Microbes, where he's he's really throwing down the gauntlet and saying, and along with the work of Maria Gloria Dominguez Bello, really saying, we need to understand what's really happening to microbial diversity. And is there is there wholesale loss of microbes as we become cleaner, more hypergenic, and has really been asking us to look more closely at exactly the birthing process, the first year of life. I don't want to do that in the context of putting more responsibility onto, you know, moms in the first year of life. They've got a lot going on. But I do think that we we really do need to think about the microbes as contributing to our health and well-being. And that comes back to Carl's work on sort of the ecosystem services of, you know, what do these microbes really do for us? And our goal really shouldn't be to just wholesale wipe them out and use this language of warfare. They they do a lot of really good things for us, things that we haven't had to had to do for ourselves. So there are people who are starting to do these sort of birth cohorts, and the reason they haven't been done until this point is that it's it's actually pretty difficult to get people to participate long term on these kinds of studies from birth when families obviously have a lot else going on. But I think that's really what we would like to understand. Um, I think we have always typically thought about early childhood as being a point in which you make a huge investment in your kids. And in the same way that we invest in their education and, you know, their developmental milestones, it would be really cool to think about what microbial milestones should they be hitting? Oh, now is when we really expect you to have diversity. Oh, you should have seen Clostridialis by now. Oh, you should have seen Bacteria deeds by now, you know. Those kinds of things, you know, I I realize that's very, you know, in the future, but I I would love some sense of a medical checkup to be including, like, what's your microbial diversity? What have you been seeing? I I sense a Richard Linkletter movie coming here, you know, Germhood. Uh, We just follow the same actors over 12 years and see what kind of germs they acquire. So I I put the question the wrong way in asking uh, uh, Julie, but I I know from your work, there at least has been a somewhat of a refashioning of thought about this question of whether uh, babies are born microbially virginal, right? And then there's there's a little bit of a shift in, in the thinking about when they might actually at least start the process of acquiring a biome. Right. So there, there's a debate <clears throat> that's going on right now, and it's still definitely an open debate about, um, you know, are, are, are babies in the womb uh, sterile or not? And traditionally, it was thought they were sterile, and, and some scientists have been presenting evidence suggesting, well, maybe actually the, the seeding process gets started even then. Um, and, you know, that, that could be, you know, potentially a, a, a 
good opportunity for a mother to kind of prepare her her baby, as it were. Because, and it does look like there is a sort of a whole kind of sort of priming of the baby's microbiome um, just through throughout early childhood. So during you know during birth, you know a baby does get, as you say, gets slathered uh, with bacteria. Something that's interesting is is that you know it's it's possible that some of the bacteria in that birth canal are actually uh, species that are very good at feeding on milk sugar. And obviously, there's no milk sugar there. Uh, but if the baby takes them in and they go into the baby's gut, then that's going to prime the baby to be able to nurse. And then when babies uh, do start to nurse, um, you know the mothers are delivering all sorts of, you know, microbially interesting things to their babies in their milk. Uh, they're, they're, there's lots of bacteria in a mother's milk. And not only that, but there is uh, food for bacteria in the milk. Uh, you know, we think of mother's milk as, you know, good, you know, calcium and protein, good for the babies, lets them grow. Um, there are also other substances that babies themselves cannot digest, but are really good for bacteria. And so that might be sort of fertilizing the baby's intestinal garden um, to, again, to help that microbiome get started. Uh, and, and as Julie said, you know, the microbiome does, it develops, uh, you know, over, you know, the years in early childhood. I mean, you can think of it like, um, think of an island emerging out of the ocean, and it's just bare rock at first. And then, you know, seeds arrive and start to, to, to sprout and you get sort of what's called an ecological succession, you know, becomes a more and more mature ecosystem. And you can actually chart that uh, in children as they gain more and more species of of these microbes. Um, but, you know, it's still early days yet. I mean, we don't have like these really big, really deep studies. I mean, it's still all, you know, fairly preliminary. Um, so that's that's where a lot of scientists are headed. You know, uh, Rob uh, Dunn, I want to come back to one of the first things that, that Carl said, which was, you know, it was good news to him to find out that there were at least uh, 59 flavors uh, of bacteria in his belly button. Or it was it was better news to hear that than there was nothing, because that would be really weird if there was nothing. That would be kind of alarming if there was nothing. But it does seem to me, just to, to touch on what, what uh, Julie was just saying, that we strive for this in certain situations. I mean, it's the winter. People are worried about flu. People are constantly sticking their hands under these Purell pumps or using antibacterial soap, trying to get their hands to the kind of, you know, the kind of status that that Carl was describing there. And the more that you guys talk, the more I wonder if that's a good idea. So, so to be unambiguous, it is, it is an incredibly good idea to wash your hands with soap and water, and that saves lives all the time. Um, but what's really interesting there is we don't actually have a great understanding of why that saves lives. Um, because in the very few studies that have looked at the overall microbial composition in terms of what's living on your hands, there's, there's not a really obvious difference in, in the community before and after washing hands. And there haven't been that many studies that have tried to get the whole community. And so what, we, what seems to be the, the new idea about what's going on there is that when we wash our hands that we're washing off the transient things with soap and water that are easier to get off and they're easier for the same reason that julie pointed out earlier that you know they don't have these reservoirs in our glands and, and follicles um and so i think in a way what we want to move toward is you know helping our bodies get rid of the transients um because on average they're more likely to be less beneficial than the than the critters that are well ensconced um 
but not getting rid of the garden. Um, and so soap and water seems really good for the getting rid of transients in terms of what we understand now. And whereas the Purell and the triclosan containing things, um, uh, it's, it's more equivocal whether they might also be doing something that gets rid of our good microbes. Um, and so I think the simple answer is soap and water. Uh, we discovered it long before we understood why it works, and we still don't fully, but, but, it, but it does. Um, Julie Segre, um, I, I sense that you have something to say about that as well, but, but I want to sort of add to that, and I can't even remember in whose article I read this now, but there is sort of a school of thought that says, well, you know, I mean, as, we, as we've shifted from a more agrarian life where, you know, people from a very young age were exposed to all kinds of animals and they were out in the dirt and they were doing farm chores, you know, in this very difficult to control natural environment that is probably rich with fungi and, and with microbes and, and all kinds of of other stuff to a different environment, which we at least think we can control and we try to control that in a way we are changing the, the process that we've been talking about for this entire show. Maybe you can react to that. We are definitely changing really dramatically the ways in which we live. That includes heating, air conditioning, all sorts of things. I, I just wanted to, and so vaccinations, there are a lot of really good things. I mean, we vaccinate against microbes that previously would have resulted in a lot of childhood illnesses. There's not as much kids with worms. So we've absolutely changed, and this is part of who we, this is part of our new normal as um, humans uh, inhabiting this earth. And so I don't think we're going to give back any of that, those kind of advances. And it's, it's probably now about how do we restore some of what we may have um, given away too easily without even realizing that there were microbes that were providing some health benefit. But I, it, it's really hard. I mean, my, my husband always talks about as an ecologist that he wishes he could have seen Chicago 500 years ago. I think we all would have liked to have seen what the microbiome was like before the advent and the utilization of antibiotics. And there are people who are going off and trying to find populations who haven't had um, exposure to antibiotics. But it's not clear that the microbes that you'll find uh, in those people's, you know, skin and gut will be what would have been, you know, on my great-great-grandmother's you know, skin and, and gut, there's probably are going to be variations between different populations depending on their food and climate and things like that. Unfortunately, I think we may have just missed the opportunity to know what were the microbes that lived in and on our bodies before we started taking antibiotics. But I think we can, from the genetic structure, we can start to see, like, you know, sequencing bacteria and start to say, oh, Actually, it would help to have more bacteria that have these kinds of decarboxylases or other enzymes that we realize are part of our metabolic process. And I do see better engineering of microbial health and restoring bacteria that have beneficial roles. But we, we really do need a lot more basic research to understand what are those services that the bacteria provide to us. If I could have a second, I was just sure. going to back up and say with Rob, you know, that it is true that there is the oral fecal transmission. I mean, I'm a you know, big proponent of my kids washing their hands because that's really what you're trying to avoid. And it's also true, as Rob was saying in hospitals, that we really do worry about the spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But that's a very different scenario than 
what's happening between the playground and the lunchroom in a school, where I really think we need to teach kids and have that be part of their health is to wash your hands before you eat lunch at school. And I think that that's a really important part about going to school is just learning basic public health like that. All right. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, I just want to quickly mention that oral fecal transmission was the name of my punk band in high school. But um, also that we get, we have some wonderful um, voices from the streets collected by the amazing Julia Pistel, which we cannot fire off today because of the technical problems we're having. So go to WNPR.org, drop down the show menu, go on the Colin McEnroe show later today. You can hear that. You can hear the audio. You can hear links to books and articles by Rob Dunn and Carl Zimmer uh, and Julie Segre. We're going to be back with Carl and another bacterial story. Kind of fits well into what Julie was just talking about after this. You gotta have skin All you really need is skin Skin's the thing that if you got it outside It helps keep your insides in It covers your nose And it's wrapped around your toes inside it you put lemon meringue and outside you hang your clothes skin is what you feel at home in and without it furthermore both your liver and abdomen would keep falling on the floor and you'd be dressed in your intestine a Siamese twin needs an extra set of skin Now I'm uncomfortably aware of all the microbes on my skin. Hey, you two, get a room! Whatever happened to just dividing? Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Julia Pistel. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Pigpen. For show pages, articles, and pictures of the Faith Middleton show staff helping microbe musicians tune up for a very tiny desk concert, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose wonders why we have bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson on the 20. And now, back to Colin. All right. So in our final segment, we are talking to Carl Zimmer here, and we're going to be talking. You've probably been listening to this show where we've been talking about microbes. We've been talking about bacteria. uh, We've been talking about all this kind of stuff. And you've probably been saying to yourself, when are they going to get to clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats? Well, now, now we're finally getting to it. So, uh, Carl, the uh, cuter name for that is CRISPR. Uh, Tell us what CRISPR is. What CRISPR is right now, uh, the reason it's in the news, uh, and people like me have been writing about it, is because uh, it's it's a new way of editing DNA. It's incredibly powerful, it's incredibly quick, it's incredibly cheap, and it could perhaps just revolutionize all sorts of parts of our life from medicine to agriculture. And it turns out that these molecules, they were not invented just from scratch. They actually uh, are found in bacteria. Bacteria use these molecules uh, all over the place, including inside our bodies. So it's a new way of editing DNA, but it's also a very old way of editing DNA. And the theories about why microbes would have this capacity to edit DNA are really interesting. So one of the first theories uh, is that they have it because it has something to do with other with viruses they've fought off in the past. It's sort of a way—well, actually, I'll, I'll let you explain it. 
Why am I? Yes. Why I've got Carl Zimmer here? Why am I trying to explain something? Well, the, the fact that the evidence is quite strong that uh, they do use these things as a way to fight viruses. And you might say, like, wait a minute, gene editing viruses? What 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 are we talking about? They don't use it the way we use it for biotechnology. They use it um, basically to be able to recognize uh, the genetic material of viruses that are trying to invade them and make new copies. And so they basically have this sort of storehouse of information about these viruses, and they can basically make molecules that can precisely identify different species of viruses. So when new viruses come in, they can chop out a little piece and store it away, and then they can make a molecule from that, and that molecule is like kind of like a almost like a barcode or something. I'm not sure what the right analogy would be here, but it will just latch right on to those virus genes and then it's connected to these, you think of them as kind of molecular scissors that just go snip and cut those genes from the viruses. And now the virus can't make new copies of itself. And so that seems to be like at least its original function in, in bacteria. And it's really important for, the, for these bacteria to survive. The other theory, which I kind of love, is or one of the other theories, um, because the, the more needs to be said to explain, in fact, uh, why there would be these kinds of barcodes for viruses that, that, are, that aren't around for these bacteria to have encountered, that they almost might be like medals or ribbons or something that guys from the American Legion would wear and look at each other and go, oh, you went through those wars too, right? One of the theories about this, it might be ways of, for microbes to identify each other as kind of veterans of prior virus wars who might make common cause in the immediate future. Did, did I say that even remotely correctly? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, in the sense that we think of bacteria as just being lone microbes just out there on their own, you know, these single-celled, you know, autonomous critters. But actually, a lot of bacteria live, you could almost call it societies that they live in. In other words, you have groups of bacteria that are working together. They cooperate. Um, you know, they, they release, inside of our bodies, they might release compounds to extract stuff from our own cells and then just sort of share in the banquet. So um, they need to cooperate. And in order to cooperate, you got to make sure that you're cooperating with people or microbes you can trust. And so this might be a way for microbes that belong to the same population to say, ah, you and me, we look we look alike because we have this distinctive little pattern in our in our DNA. That's a very kind of new hypothesis, but it does fit in with some of the intriguing uh, findings about CRISPR in, in nature as opposed to in technology, the way it's being used now. Yeah, the way it's being used now is like a whole other one-hour show, and we've got about two and a half minutes left. But the possibilities do seem almost infinite, right? If you can do this, if you can do that snipping, that cut, kind of cutting and pasting, you could take an elephant and make it a woolly mammoth. You could probably do something about cancer. I assume you've got some great examples, including those, Carl Zimmer, of things that CRISPR seems to promise. Yeah, I mean, we've been able to uh, manipulate DNA now for like 40 years, but it's been, you know, now that we look back at it, it was kind of crude in the sense that we couldn't really zero in on one particular patch of DNA and precisely replace it. You'll be more kind of like, well, let's chop open DNA here or there and insert some, some genes and see what happens. And now we can actually say, like, okay, that particular, you know, little bit of that particular gene, let's change that to this exactly. And so, you know, you can imagine, for example, um, imagine people born with genetic disorders, say, like hemophilia, where it's just, a, just one little mutation that's gone awry. You can go in there and fix that. So just think about what that could potentially mean. I have what sounds like, to me, like a really stupid question. But it seems, I mean, 
it seems like a rather laborious process, or do the cells communicate with one another about these fixes? In a case like hemophilia, um, you would just need to deliver those molecules to you know enough cells in the body so that they could start producing um, the proteins you need to clot blood. You don't need to have your whole body converted and fixed. Um, That's not necessary to overcome some of these diseases. On the other hand, you do raise a good point. So what if people who are doing, say, in vitro fertilization and know that they are at risk for certain genetic disorders, what if they sort of inspect the fertilized cells and say, like, hmm, uh, I don't like that mutation. Can we fix that? And then you could go in and fix that and then implant that. Uh, And then that raises a serious question. Okay, well, if you're fixing the things that cause disease, well, what if while we're at it, we go in here and enhance something, mm-hmm. something that makes you taller or stronger or smarter? You know, what, what do we do then? We have to start actually talking seriously about these things now. Yes. Carl Zimmer, thank you so much for talking seriously about that and about your belly button. Carl Zimmer, of course, <laughs> renowned science writer and columnist for the New York Times. Thanks to uh, Rob Dunn and Julie Segre, too. Thanks especially to Lydia Brown and Kion Wolf we've had, and Gene Amatruda. We've had a very chaotic day behind the scenes. It's looked like a scene out of Star Trek where Scotty's diverting power away from the shields and stuff like that. So, um, But you wouldn't know that listening to the radio, and that's how good this team is here. They've been running around dealing with chaos. The sound uh, still sounds uh, terrific. I Hope uh, coming back to you. So thanks to everybody who stayed really cool. Am I supposed to keep talking? Just keep talking? All right. (laughs) I told you we were having a chaotic day. So uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a nose. Brendan J. Sullivan, who was basically the original DJ for Lady Gaga and the coolest guy I personally know, I think, will join uh, the nose panel. Not that Jacques Jacques Lamar, who's also on the panel, isn't cool. Not that Teresa Kramer, who's on the panel, isn't cool. You're going to give me some kind of uh, countdown here, right? (laughs) So thanks to everybody who helped out today. And as I said, it's been a chaotic day, but you'd never know it listening except for maybe right now. Your body is a wonderland. Your body is a wonder I'll use my hands. Your body is a wonderland. Excuse me, bartender? Hey, get out of here. We don't serve bacteria in this restaurant. No, you don't understand. I work here. I'm staff. Huh? Huh? Out. 